Crime Scene and Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app, funded mainly through advertising. The podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey, fellow true crime lovers. My name is Patrick, and I am the host of Not Adding Up. Not Adding Up is a podcast that features cases, as the name implies, don't add it up. This can be disappearances, strange deaths, wrongful convictions, unsolved crimes, and other unexplained phenomena. Each week, I walk a friend or family member through a case in which they are unfamiliar. I do this to allow them to ask questions I may not have thought of while researching, or that you may have as you listen. The cases I cover range from ones that are well-known, to some you may not have heard before. Since the cases I cover don't add up, I always encourage my listeners to form their own theories on what they believe happened and never present my opinion as fact. Frequently, my co-host has a very different theory than my own, which proves the cases I cover are ones that just don't make sense and need to be discussed further. So if you are a true crime lover and find yourself constantly forming your own theories when listening to podcasts, not adding up is perfect for you. Tune in each Friday for new episodes, available on all major streaming platforms. Hey guys, it's Marianne, Dog Mom Baker, true crime podcast maker. As you guys know, I have been out for a while. Um, I did have a procedure done, and I am still slowly crawling my way back up to feeling normal again, and it's actually going to be a while before I feel like I'm going to be able to communicate normally. So I hope this podcast comes across okay. I might have a few issues and bumps in the road, but as it goes with the rest of life, there's always a lot of bumps in the road, but we all just kind of work within it. And there is a lot of cases that we are catching up with a lot of information and a lot of, oh my God, so many, so much information and so many cases that are going to be coming out. So please keep an eye on the podcast because it's not going to be coming out once a week or within our normal time frame. We're just going to be cranking podcast after podcast out as we are showing you guys the stuff that we have found out, the information we have, and we just want to let you guys know what the heck we have found out and what is going on. So be prepared. But today I wanted to come to you with this case because it has been a special request. And normally, you know, I talk about cold cases. And I talk about cold cases here in Kansas or in Oklahoma or in Missouri. And somebody came to me with this case. And this case still lingers on a lot of the minds of people here in Kansas. And it's the case of Jody Sanderholm. And it just amazes me when you mention true crime in Kansas, this is a case that comes to a lot of people's mind. Not, you know, of course, everybody thinks of BTK or the Carr brothers, 
But when you just think of this truly one heinous act, it is the case of Jody Sanderholm. Now again, I normally cover cold cases because I want them to get as much attention as possible. I want to get the information out there and I want us to find answers. And this offender has been caught. This offender is locked up and you would figure the case is done. But this family is far from done. They are still having to deal with things. And we're going to talk about that. You know, even with forensics, the detectives, they did everything they needed to do. The judicial process did everything they could to give Jody justice. But they are still having to fight today. The family even created a law from this to give law enforcement a stronger edge in the intervention of stalking here in Kansas in 2008. And it, it just makes me crazy that they are still having to fight. So I agree with this special listener. I think that even though this is a solved case, we do need to talk about the Jody Sanderholm case. Now, other podcasters have covered this case, but they don't live in Kansas. They didn't know what it was like, as many of you out there did, what it was like to live here, what it was like to share your schools with Jody, what it was like to share a locker with her, what it was like to go to the same college. I didn't. But I know many of you out there did. Many of you might have shared the same school with the man who committed the crime. And I know this case still hits with you today. So all of you who grew up during this tragedy, just know I'm really sorry for how you have been touched by this violence. I am so sorry to the families and friends for their loss of Jody. From everything I have seen, and I was around a little bit during this time period, and she was a bright and vibrant light who was taken much too early. Now, this case takes us to Ark City, Kansas. Now, that's what we call it here in Kansas. That's a local name for it. Its true name is Arkansas City. It has about 12,000 residents, and it is situated between the Arkansas River, yes, not the Arkansas River, the Arkansas River, and the Walnut River. And most of its workforce is supplied by local college students. The Cali County Community College, that's the largest community college within the Ark City, and it has campuses in Wellington, Mulvane, Winfield, and Wichita. Wichita is only about an hour drive up the road on the turnpike. Now, Wichita is the largest metropolitan, told you I can't talk, metropolitan area in the basic vicinity. Now, Jody. Jody was born on September 26, 1998. 
1987 in Arkansas City to Brian and Cindy Sanderholm. Jody attended Ark City Schools, graduating from Arkansas City High School in 2006. They told me I need to get used to talking more. She was one of four valedictorians in her graduating class. While in high school, Jody was a member of the National Honor Society, a Kansas State Scholar, a Kansas Board of Regents Scholar, and earned the Outstanding Physics Student of the Year Award presented by David Steinmetz. She was a member of the Ark City High School dance team for four years. Two of those four years, she was the captain. Jody was a member and instructor of the Ark City Dance and a Universal Dance Association instructor. After high school, she attended Cali County College, where she studied pre-pharmacy. While at Cali, she was a member of the Cali Tigerette dance line. Although she and her boyfriend were dating since high school and planned to marry one day, she did receive some sometimes unwanted attention of the guys on campus. Jody did what most kids do when going to college and living close to family. She lived at home and she had a daily routine. She would attend her classes and then go home around noon time, sometimes grabbing lunch at the local subway or someplace close. And then she would always grab the mail. And if she hadn't grabbed lunch, she would go inside, make herself some lunch, hang out. And almost always her mom would call and check in on her because as her mom, Cindy said, they were best friends. But on July 5th, 2007, this regular routine changed. Now the day started off normally following her routine. Jody went to dance practice at the college that finished around 10.45 a.m. After training, she left the college and that was it. No one had seen or heard from Jody. Now, as usual, over lunch, Cindy calls Jody. There's no answer. And moms, we got that spidey sense. But she's trying to, you know, okay, maybe she's in the shower. You know, she had dance practice. She gets sweaty. Maybe she's a little tied up. But that mother's intuition is just at the back of the brain. So she waits about 10 minutes and she calls back. No answer. So Cindy decides to contact Jennifer. Jennifer is Jody's older sister who is also pregnant and very close to her due date. Nobody ignores Jennifer's phone calls. So Jennifer tries to contact Jody several times. No answer. Jennifer and Cindy are freaking out. They contact Brian, dad. He's the dad of the family. He's trying to maintain everybody to be calm. And he is reasoning, you know what? 
Don't overreact. I'm sure she's with friends. I'm sure it's okay. Everybody just pump the brakes. It, it's going to be cool because you never want to assume the worst, especially when it's your children. But Cindy, she left work. She gets home. She finds out Jody's car is gone. There's no mail on the, on the counter. She's thinking, okay, Jody probably didn't even make it home. She's thinking, well, her husband said maybe Jody went with friends. So she goes and she contacts Jody's friends. And they say the last time they saw Jody was at practice. And one friend even says that Jody had mentioned stopping at Subway on the way home. So we're going to talk about Subway a few more times. But again, just sounds like a regular day. Nothing out of the norm. However, another girl mentions, well, Jody might have planned on going out with a friend who lived just on the outskirts of town. Okay, Cindy takes a breath, but mom brain is still tingling because she and Jody talked all the time. And I swear, this is how I am with my son. When I don't hear from him for a while, I just get paranoid. I mean, yeah, he's older. He has his own life now. But if it goes too long and I don't hear a word from him, mom brain kicks in. I start freaking out. Cindy knows Jody has a meeting at 3 o'clock with her high school dance team because she's choreographing this stuff. And she dances one of her huge things. Yeah, she's pre-pharmacy, but dance is her life. She loves dance. She's amazing at it. She knows Jody's devotion to dance and her responsibility to the team. Jody would not miss this. Three o'clock comes and three o'clock goes and there is no Jody. So it's at this time, Jody's father had come home because he wanted to console Cindy, but there is no Jody. So they decide it's time to circle the wagons. It's time to call law enforcement. But remember, Jody is 19. Now, in a lot of normal cases, police might say, well, Jody's an adult. She can be gone if she wants to. And she'd only been missing for six hours. In a typical situation, police aren't going to immediately launch into a missing persons. However, this isn't a typical situation. And the Sander Holmes, they knew the Ark City police chief. And that is one of the big difference between smaller towns and bigger towns. Small towns, they know each other. They know what's normal, what's not quite the same. They know routines, they know what's going on. The police get to know the families. So Chief Sean Wallace he also had children of his own, and he took this case very personally. And so did most of the town and the police force. So Chief Sean Wallace and Lieutenant Mark McCaslin, they went to speak to Jody's parents. And they learned from them that Jody had a boyfriend named David. And of course, you know how it is. Boyfriend husband, whoever is closest, that's who police want to talk to. 
So they contacted David. Now David had been visiting his brother in Dallas, Texas. But as soon as he found out Jody was missing, he hauled his, he said, I'm getting my butt back to Ark City as soon as possible. He wanted to do all he could to help find Jody. So that day, missing notices went on blast everywhere. Law enforcement, media, it was saturated. Everyone knew Jody Sanderholm was missing. January 5th, everyone was on the lookout for Jody Sanderholm. Citizens of Ark City and surrounding areas began scouring neighborhoods. They were driving around. They were looking everywhere. Nobody wasn't affected. And that's why I wanted to talk about it as well. As I said, somebody had approached me about this case because they were affected. They did not forget about this case. You can't drive through the town. You can't live there and forget about what happened. Now, the police also spoke to Jody's dance friends. They asked if they had noticed anyone suspicious trying to hang out with Jody or somebody just hanging around the college. And that's when the girls were like, yeah, there's a guy, you know, that guy, guy named Justin Thurber. He's 23 years old who would watch them in the parking lot. He stared at them when they were dancing and practicing, and he just gave the creep me out vibes. Now, Justin was known to the police, not only because he had a minor criminal history, nothing violent, but he just had that reputation around town. You know, that reputation. The police went to go speak to Justin on the evening of January 5th. Now, guess where Justin had worked? A local Subway sandwich shop. And police also remembered Jody had plans to pick up a sandwich from there the day she disappeared. Now, when police investigated further, they found out Justin had been fired a couple of weeks before Jody went missing. It's a thing though. Justin had been fired a couple of weeks before Jody went missing. This is why it's significant. He was fired because he made the other employees feel uncomfortable. I want you guys to chew on that for a moment. How uncomfortable do you have to make other employees feel? I mean, because the restaurant business is hard to staff. It always has been. My brother has been in the restaurant business ever since I can remember. They don't just fire people. So how uncomfortable do you have to make your fellow staff members for them to fire you for making people uncomfortable? Now, this is again just small town rumor, but there were also rumors that he had been stalking some of his female co-workers. But there aren't any police reports filed about that, so there's no evidence of that. But police are interested in these connections between Jody 
and Justin. He worked at Subway, where Jody is known to stop for lunch. Also, Jody is on the dance team, where Justin is known to make members of the team feel uncomfortable, and it's been said he's been stalking a few of them. Police had also found out that on January 5th, 2007, Justin Thurber had been pulled over right by Cali County Community College because he had run a stop sign. He had done that about an hour before Jody finished dance practice. So now it's verified that he was in the area before Jody went missing. It's at this point police know they need to speak to Justin. So the police bring Justin in for questioning. And Justin tells the police he had been with three friends on their way out to Cali County State Lake. Now, Cali County State Lake is a really big fishing lake, and it's about 15, 20 minutes outside of Ark City. Another thing to really keep in the front of your brain is that it had been raining a lot around Ark City about this time. And he said that, okay, they were driving out there and then the car got stuck in the mud. So they tried to get the car unstuck and they couldn't get it. So Justin called his dad to come and pick them all up. Remember that. Justin called his dad to pick him and his three friends up. And this is something else. When somebody tells us to the police, especially in a missing person case, the investigators are going to go follow up. They're not going to say, okay, that sounds good. Thank you so much for sharing. And then just ignore it. I don't know who Justin thought he was messing with. Of course, they're going to check it out. They contacted Justin's friends or Justin's alibis. Jason, Paul, and Stuart. They were questioned separately, and they were pretty confused. They denied being in Justin's car with him that day, or even getting stuck in the mud. Jason, he had a physical therapy appointment. One of the other friends was out of state, and the remaining one, he was at work. They were really confused as to what Justin was saying. I don't know if he thought they would just automatically back him up or what exactly was going on, but they were able to provide the receipts on where they were and what the hell was going on. Police know Justin's not being honest with them. And in the meantime, they're still looking for Jody and her black Stratus, which is her car. Jody's dad, Brian, he contacted several local news stations, and he, I mean, he is getting the word out. The family is keeping Jody out there on the airwaves, so somebody hopefully will find her. Then, on January 6, 2007, Special Agent David Folletti with the KBI, or the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, he joined the investigation as well. And also ground and aerial searches started. So this is the next day. So they are not screwing around. 
people, boots on the ground, are looking for Jody. So Special Agent Fletty, he spoke to David, who was Jody's boyfriend, and he, David is beside himself. And he said he had not spoken to Jody since January 4th. And Special Agent Fletty, David's phone and his bank records, he said he looked through all of that and he said David was exactly where he said he was. He was in Dallas and he ruled him out for having anything to do with Jody. So the police were fully focused on Justin Thurber. Two plus two equaled four. They had a very good feeling this was Justin Thurber. He was... Now, they were examining all options, but they had a really good inkling that this could have been Justin. They went to his ex-girlfriend to try to find out some more information about Justin. And they learned from his ex-girlfriend that he liked to spend time at the Ka Wildlife Area. Now, that's a 4,300-acre area of rugged terrain. She even went on a car ride with one of the detectives. So, they're taking her, driving around, anything. Just anything you might think of that will help us find Jody. And that's when she's sitting there and she sees a dog out on the boat dock. And I firmly believe dogs are just, they help us every time, no matter what they're doing. But she sees that dog and she told police that Justin had mentioned that if he was going to kill someone and dump a body in that area, he didn't think it would ever be found. Yeah, that's just normal conversation people have with their girlfriends, right? I mean, what the hell, people? And Justin's ex-girlfriend also provided some additional insight into Justin's mind leading up to Jody's disappearance. She said Justin had become increasingly violent with her during sex. He would try to choke her. And that's when she had enough. She broke it off five days before Jody went missing. Let's think about this. Justin lost his job. He lost his girlfriend. Girlfriend he'd been dating for close to three years. And as us true crimers know, those significant life changes can sometimes be the predicators to violent outbreaks of offenders. Now, police knew that Jody had last been seen on Cali County campus on January 5th at 10 a.m. outside the auditorium. They go back to the campus and they obtain surveillance footage from the school. CCTV is always an investigator's best friend. It never lies. What you see is what you get. So they go through that footage with a fine-tooth comb. And guess what they find? Justin's blue Cadillac. On January 5th, not only that, they see Jody's black Stratus leaving the school 
and right behind it, following right behind her, was Justin's blue Cadillac. The police also saw that Justin had visited the college several days in a row, leading up to January 5th. There's some really crappy things going on. And police are like, oh, if we could just get a break, if we could just do something to get them in and try to get some answers. Because all of this stuff is leading up to the possibility that Justin knows something. Well, Justin was out on bond for the theft. And the bondsman decided to revoke his bond. And because of that, the police were able to bring him in. So that's a game changer. And that's what happens when people work together. So he was taken into custody while he was on his way home with his mom and his sister from a bingo game. And not only that, the police also went to Justin's parents' home with a search warrant because that's where Justin had been staying. And they decided, let's also talk to Justin's dad about this pickup he did with the three guys that are saying were not there. Justin's dad said, nope, I did pick up Justin, though. And the minute we got home, he took off all of his clothes, threw them in the wash. His shoes were really muddy. And he cleaned those, and I even helped him clean them. And he immediately took a shower. And the common factor in this case that keeps hitting the forefront of my mind is mud. The fact of the mud is the common denominator in this case. The mud leads us to the answers. So the police confiscated Justin's muddy shoes, because there still was, the clothing, cell phone, and blue Cadillac. Now, even though most of the items had been somewhat cleaned, police were hopeful that there would be something, something possibly to lead them to Jody Sanderholm. And on January 7th, 2007, this is two days after she went missing, the police didn't go out to call wildlife area. The police didn't find anything on Justin's shoes, clothes, or in his car. However, there was a shoe print that seemed to match Justin's tennis shoes across the street from the Sandra Holmes house. Now, not saying that his shoes were that unique or unusual, but it's a big coincidence that the same type of shoe that Justin had on was also outside the Sandra Holmes house. Then the similarities continue. They were able to find the same shoe prints at the Wildlife Center. Down by the state line is where it was located, down by the state line over by Oklahoma. But now the search expands because we have two new guys that joined the search. And they are John and Ron Cannon. Yeah. John and Ron. They worked as local firefighters and they did search and rescue in their spare time and they were hell of a trackers. 
These trackers followed the prints and saw a second set of shoe prints, which were much smaller, and they figured they were flip-flops. It was known that Jody was wearing flip-flops after practice. Now, the police had located about 50 shoe prints that they thought was possibly from Justin, but they could only find about four that could have been from Jody. So to them, it appeared that the individual with the tennis shoes had continued walking while the person with the smaller flip-flops had suddenly stopped. Now, what they assumed was the individual with the tennis shoes had picked up the person with the flip-flops. And I'm sure anybody who might have been there that day if you're visualizing what could have happened, would have got a bolt of chills down their spine. But they continue on, and they continue to look for any sign of Jody. They look until the sun starts to set, and it's too dark to go on. So the cannons were driving home after a long day of searching when they came upon a rest area. On the path leading up to the area, so they decide, well, we're going to give it a shot. When they get there, they did find some dirt transfer. And they decide, all right, we're going to investigate this. And they get into the bathroom, and they are going through each door and checking everything. And through one of the doors, they find mail belonging to the Sanderholms, just sitting there. Then they also come across a flip-flop and then Jody's Tigerette's jacket. And these are just shoved into one of the toilets. And then there's a car mat. Who the hell would just put these in a toilet? What were they trying to accomplish? So the cannons then contacted the police to come to the area and preserve the evidence because holy shit, they've got something here. So the other toilets in the septic tank were searched. And I mean searched. They went in there whole hog to get what they needed. They were able to retrieve Jody's wallet, dance shoes, and again, floor mats from Jody's car. On January 8th, 2007, Tim Miller from Texas EquiSearch. And if you guys aren't familiar with Texas EquiSearch... Texas EquiSearch, first of all, what's really cool is they never charge a family or law enforcement for their services. They're headquartered um, near Houston, Texas, and they use ground searchers, side scan sonar, which that's something I've talked a little bit about on Uncovered, but it's a side scan sonar, ground penetrating radar, Boats, aircrafts, drones, and ATVs. Now, it was established in 2000 by Tim Miller. He was motivated to create this organization after the kidnapping and murder of his daughter, Laura Miller, in 1984. But, so, Texas EquiSearch was called in to help try to find Jody's car because the police believed it was somewhere in the lake. And Ark City just did not have the capability to try to find it. But now this is three days, 
three days after Jody went missing. So time, if you've been ever keeping an eye on a missing persons case, sometimes you'll see them go so long. But this is a small town, and they are moving quick on this case. So Steve Koch of the KBI Crime Lab, he was also contacted to examine the shoe prints. And he made casts of the shoe prints from the wildlife path and across the street from Jody's house. And he was able to determine that the shoe prints were a match to Justin's tennis shoes. The cast and Justin's shoes had the exact same herringbone pattern and horizontal lines. On January 9th, 2007, the trackers noticed a disturbed area off the path. They were able to see a wood pile and a hand sticking out from underneath it. The victim was nude and she had been beaten and there were a few sticks covering her body. The police believed it was Jody and from the condition of the body, they believed she had been sexually assaulted. The dental records ended up confirming that it was Jody. Now, we're not going to go into what had occurred with and what had been done to her. There is another podcast out there that I recommend if you want to get more in depth to what had happened and you want to go more in depth to that part of the case and that is going west. But I am not going to share those graphic details here. But I will share that Jody had been strangled and blunt force trauma was a contributing factor. Jody had been hit so hard that it had damaged an artery in her neck. The medical examiner was also able to determine that Jody had been sexually assaulted. The, tex the Texas EquiSearch team was able to locate Jody's car in the nearby lake, and it was confirmed by her license plate. The car had been in the lake for about four days and the pressure of the water had actually forced the sunroof open. Now the police were thinking, that's probably washed any evidence away. But the police chief was like, okay, go ahead and do a tape lift on the seats, just in case. You know, just check to see if there could be possibly anything there. And guess what? They found an arm hair, a friggin' arm hair that belonged to Justin. And Justin's DNA was also found underneath Jody's fingernails. Also, Justin's cell phone records put him in the area of the State Lake and the Kaw Wildlife Area. It's believed he had followed Jody home. He then abducted Jody while she was getting the mail. He forced her into her car and they drove out to the wildlife area. Justin tortured and killed Jody, then disposed of her car and personal items. Justin was charged with capital murder, attempted rape, aggravated criminal sodomy, an aggravated kidnapping. 
Now, Justin's trial was delayed so many times because Justin ended up getting the death penalty. It had begun on February 2nd, 2009, and the Sanderholms, they stood by Justin getting the death penalty. Over 60 witnesses testified about the mountain of evidence against Justin. The trial lasted seven days, but the jury only deliberated three and a half hours. He was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to death on March 2009. Now, as I had said before, on July 1st of 2008, Jody's Law was taken into effect in the state of Kansas. There is a website for it, and we will have the link to our to that in our notes. Now, here's where things just get shitty. Justin's conviction has been looked into multiple times and his constant appeals. In 2017, his attorneys claimed that Justin was developmentally disabled. Justin Thurber, he had a competency hearing previous to his original hearing. Justin Thurber, he graduated high school and even attended some college. But he is pulling every rabbit he can out of his head. But Justin Thurber, I honestly believe he just wants to torture the family. He is just being cruel. And this family is having such a hard time healing. 2018, Justin's death sentence was postponed by the Supreme Court. Now, I want to go to the appeal in 2017. This is something I want to read that Cake News was there. And oh, this, this just pisses me off. So during the appeal of the death penalty, when questioned by the Supreme Court justices, Thurber's attorney said, and I quote, that Jody Sanderholm's suffering was pure speculation. Here's the quote. The conscious physical suffering of this young woman is speculative. This is by Reed, who is the attorney, and this was quoted by Cake News on October 27th, 2017. So they're saying Nobody was there, and you don't know how much she actually suffered. And I don't want to further hurt anyone else who might be listening. Um, there are times I've found out that family members have listened to my podcast, and I don't want to burden anyone with the pain of hearing. But as I had said, she had had a blow to her head that had severed the artery. Jody had been kidnapped. Jody had been assaulted. If you can't say even a bit of that, if you're saying her physical suffering is speculative, I can't even imagine the humanity that this person is lacking to even say that. 
And then on top of it, Jody's mother, Cindy Sanderholm, she has sat in the courtroom for all the proceedings. She is a strong woman. I don't know how she has been able to sit there and endure this, but she is there to make sure Jody gets justice. And she has had to hear them trivialize her daughter's attack, abuse, and torture. Now, this is what she has to say. She's explained that Justin should not be allowed to live out his days at the El Dorado State Penitentiary. And here's the reason why. She has stated that during his stay there, he has been writing love letters to other women. So he's not really being, he's getting to live out a life. This is not a man who shows remorse for his acts. This is not a man who appears to be enduring punishment. While the family endures the loss of the light that Jody was to them every day, they continue to await justice. So I want to thank my special listener who suggested this case. And I also wanted to thank you guys for listening and all of you in Kansas who is affected by this case. I know it was extremely difficult. And I wanted to tell you tomorrow we are sharing the case of Rachel Pratt, who went missing in Garden City, Kansas. It has been a heart-wrenching case. And sometimes it takes a while for me to get cases out. And I wanted to explain a little bit as to why. I'm an omnivorous researcher. I don't just consult a few things. I consult everything. I try to find whether or not it might be a valuable researching tool, whether or not I want to just ingest anything and everything that might be out there. So I look at it all and try to see if there's anything that could be worth something that could take us a little bit further in that case. And I try to share whatever I can with the local police departments. So Garden City Police Department is, as always, an incredible police department to work with. They have always been amazing in sharing information and doing what they can to get those cold cases off their shelves. They're incredible. I will be working on this case and have been working on this case with my wonderful, wonderful, I call him my person. He's one of my many wonderful people, as well as, as you guys know, Thena with Cryptic Soup is my other amazing person I love to share with. But Patrick from Not Adding Up and I have been working on this case because this case with Rachel Pratt has just not added up. And I thought, who is more perfect to work on a case that's not adding up than Patrick himself? So join us as Patrick and I discuss the case of Rachel Pratt in Garden City. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, be safe.